Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation in energy management and automation. Schneider Electric is harnessing all of them and pioneering solutions like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. You can find out more at schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. And if it's easier for you, we've got a link in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by PG&E. And if you're a PG&E customer, you can take advantage of limited time incentives with their EV fleet program. Make the smart choice by taking your fleet electric. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists. To learn more, head on over to pge.com slash gtm. That's pge.com slash gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. I'm joined as always by Shail Khan, who is out in Berkeley, California. He's managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, Stephen. I am great. How are you? Good. Well, uh, probably better than you all over there in Northern California. The uh, latest torrent of wildfires in California is finally mostly under control, but everyone, public officials, utility execs, homeowners, they're in a state of panic. The scope and frequency of these kinds of disasters feels very new. It is unrelenting, uh, and it's not solved by sprinkling a little bit more renewable energy on the grid. It's a planning issue of the highest magnitude. And that brings us to the second episode in our mini-series on climate risk. We are talking with someone who is thinking through the complexities of dealing with the growing impact of climate change on the geography, the economy, and the infrastructure of California, the world's fifth biggest economy. Who is it, Shale? It is Kate Gordon. Kate is the uh, director of the Office of Planning and Research for the state of California. She's also a climate advisor uh, to Governor Newsom. You know, the, the title of her agency, I think, actually doesn't do justice to the importance of its role. Yeah, the director of the Office of Planning and Research. That sounds so dry, but as you'll hear, it is a damn hard and complex job. Mm-hmm. And particularly given, you know, what has happened since Governor Newsom took office and Kate joined the administration, you know, you've got just immediately after that, you've got these wildfires, you've got PG&E bankruptcy, you've got proactive power shut off, you've got questions around all that stuff, not to mention the ongoing questions that California faces around water and all these other issues, coastal areas. So it's a big job. Yeah. So we both know Kate well. Uh, she is a truly amazing leader. So I worked with her when I was at the Center for American Progress. She directed the energy program there. I can definitely attest to her knowledge and her leadership style. And so I think she's trying really hard there in California to figure out how to manage just this crazy, complex problem. Uh, And as we'll hear, Shale has an even more uh, personal connection from way back earlier in their lives that that they'll talk about. Um, So what does it take to actually do this job, Shale? Like, what are the things that she's thinking through when it comes to risk? I mean, as you'll hear from Kate, they California in some ways deals with like every almost every risk uh, you can think of. There's water issues, wildfire issues. There's coastal issues. There's inland issues. California has you know impacts on agriculture. It's it's a good example of the ways in, that climate change is so pervasive, um, and California is a big state, so it faces a lot of it. And so it's, you know, you've got this sort of simultaneous, one of the things that I think is particularly challenging about 
Kate's role and what she has to do is it's this combination of this very immediate problem, which is PG&E, Southern California Edison, wildfires, proactive power shutoffs. That is happening like daily here. It is in the news. It's what the governor has to talk about and they got to do something about it. ASAP. And that sort of juxtaposed against, um, I think what her agency is supposed to be doing, which is planning like urban planning. So talking about timeframes that are more aligned with the nature of climate change, which is over decades. And so trying to figure out how to sort of solve both of those things simultaneously has to be like a monumental challenge. Yeah, this was a really good conversation. Very relevant, given what is happening right now in California. So without further ado, here is Shale's conversation with Kate Gordon, the director of California's Office of Planning and Research. So let's get this out of the way to start. Yeah. You and I have known each other for literally my entire life. Your entire life. Uh It is true. um, Which is we date back to Madison, Wisconsin, where we both grew up. And you Within were, three blocks of each other. Yeah, I actually didn't know where you grew up. Sydney. I just knew you were around my house a lot. We were on, on Sydney, Sydney so two two blocks down. Right. There's some other famous person who lived on Sydney at some point. I, do, I don't think of myself as a famous person, but I don't know who that was. <laughs> An additional famous person. In addition to you, you know who I think it was, is Bradley Whitford. No, he didn't. He grew up on Sherman. He was oh. like just for, slightly further down because all the Whitfords, Josh, all of them, they used mm-hmm. to babysit. They used to babysit us. And I used to babysit you. So it's all connected. Right. Okay. Well, so very odd to have my former babysitter on the podcast, but very excited to have you. You, Um, I'm excited to be here. In addition to being my babysitter and a native of Madison, Wisconsin, you've done many things in your career. I'm going to list off some that uh, pop into my head. Okay. Uh, You were the executive director at the Apollo Alliance back in the early days of the sort of green jobs movement. Yeah, the original Green New Deal, as I like to remind people. Did you guys call it that? We sure did. Uh huh. You should remind people (laughs) That That seems like the kind of thing you should do. Uh, You're the VP of Energy at CAP, the Center for American Progress. Where I worked with Stephen. Right, where you worked with Stephen. Um, It all comes full circle. You spent a bunch of time working with Hank Paulson after he left the administration on climate stuff. You were part of founding the Climate Impact Lab, um, which we had Trevor Hauser on the podcast last week. Oh, great. So uh, you were part of the founding of that research. And then now you are the director of the California State Office of Planning and Research. Yes. What is the Office of Planning and Research? So California has this office that's in the governor's office. So we're basically the long-range planning and land use advisors to the governor and the legislature. Um, So we're part of the governor's office, but we also sort of sit in this interesting interagency middle ground where we help all of the different agencies uh, deal with sort of long-term planning and land use issues, including climate resilience, which is a big part of what we do. I'm also the governor's senior advisor on climate change, and I'm also the chair of the Strategic Growth Council. So lots and lots of different hats within state government. But what does it mean to be the chair of the Strategic Growth Council? So that is a council made up of about seven different agency secretaries that does uh, for the first instance, we like direct funds from a couple of big programs that are funded by our cap and trade program, the Affordable Housing Sustainable Communities Program and the Transformative Climate Communities Program. And those are both programs where we kind of bring together housing, transportation, urban greening, uh, workforce, like all of the goals of the climate program into one set of projects um, all over the state. And so we oversee those projects, but we also use it as an opportunity to talk about big cross-cutting initiatives on mm-hmm. climate. 
Fascinating. So we're doing this sort of few episodes around climate risk, um, both the calculation of it and the analysis of it, but then also what to do about it. And you have this role both at OPR and it sounds like um, as the governor's advisor on climate change, where you're thinking about that a lot. I guess the first thing that I want to do is separate out, because I know your mandate and certainly the state of California's mandate is both around mitigation of climate change, doing things to prevent climate change from occurring and adaptation to climate change. Yes. So how do you think about the balance that you try to strike between those two things? Yeah, I I think that we, and I'm sure you'll hear this from everybody, I, I really think we're sort of past the dichotomy between those things. We we are now in a moment where we're dealing with the impacts of climate change from our emissions from decades ago every day. Especially here in California, we have every possible impact in California. I mean, literally everything. We even have glaciers, which I didn't realize. So we have I don't know where, but we have, we have, I should know where, but I don't. Glacier melt, we have, I think in the Sierras, we have glacier melt, we have extreme heat, we have sea level rise, we have wildfires, we have flooding, like we have everything that you can think of. Um, So we're dealing with that all the time, but at the same time, we're trying to build and rebuild all of our systems to be lower carbon, which is really the mitigation side. And I think increasingly, we're thinking about how to do those two things together. So uh, a big top of mind thing right now is, you know, grid resilience, right? So the grid is very vulnerable to climate impacts because it's a big place-based capital investment that people have made and you can't move it easily. Uh, And it's in a bunch of places where there's a bunch of fires. Uh, We're thinking about how do you make the grid more resilient in a way that also recognizes the need for sort of a more decentralized and lower carbon grid and energy system. So that's a good example of those two things coming together. There's a lot of examples like that. So some of the stuff we do is pure adaptation, some of it's pure mitigation, but there's more and more stuff in the middle. Right. Okay. So you alluded to California has some of everything. Yes. Um, Let's go into a little bit more detail. So, you know, if you're looking out at California and you're thinking about what are the risks specifically due to climate change that we're facing over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, how do you bucket them? Yeah. California, it turns out, and this is going to sound really banal, but it's so big. I mean, when I started working for the state, I sort of hadn't realized how huge it is. Geographically, also, we just we have twice as many people as New York State. I mean, it's huge. We have twice as many people as Canada, right? It's just an, it's a massive state, fifth largest economy in the world. And because it's the entire coast on the west side, essentially, of the country, almost the entire coast, it's it just got an enormous amount going on. And then the 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 coastal parts are really different from the inland parts. So you referred to the work I did with Climate Impact Lab. Their original research that they've built on was from the Risky Business Project, which we ran with Mike Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer originally. And all that research showed that climate impacts are incredibly regional and local, right? And in California, the big ones, everyone thinks sea level rise is the big one, right? When you talk to Californians, I think it's because we're such a coastal state. Our legislature is overwhelmingly coastal. Our cities are on the coast. We're very coastal. Everyone says, oh, sea level rise is your big issue. In fact, extreme heat is probably our biggest issue. Uh, We have a huge amount of resources in the middle of the state. Um, All of our agriculture, for instance, our oil and gas is there. Um, A lot of our wood in the northern middle part of the state. Um, And all of that is very subject to, to extreme heat, particularly sort of lower Central Valley down into the Inland Empire, down, of course, into the desert area. And those impacts are pretty significant. Um, We've got, you know, in the agricultural sector, we actually passed legislation a couple years ago. I wasn't at the state, but um, to require agricultural producers to do, to provide an air conditioned place for workers for breaks and also to provide water because people were fainting uh, from heat stress on the job. 
Uh, we have a lot of outdoor workers in the middle of the state where it's hottest. We, so we have a labor productivity issue, which is one of the things Risky Business and the Climate Impact Lab have looked a lot at, is that relationship between heat and labor productivity. We have, um, uh, of course, a crop yield issue. So agriculture is very, very sensitive to heat. And it's interesting, particularly um, uh, particularly the kind of agriculture we have, which is specialty ag. So if you do like tree fruits um, and wine is a great example, it's not just that the yield changes with heat, the taste changes with heat. And with wine, that can be a complete change in market. Right. right. Uh, yeah, so all about... those things. Sorry, and cows yeah. and cows too are very heat heat sensitive. It turns out we have a lot of those. Cows themselves are heat sensitive. Cows meaning... themselves they produce a lot less milk in extreme heat. Mm. So okay, so we have the risk of higher temperatures, particularly yeah. in the middle of the state, not in the coastal parts, causing all sorts of havoc yes. on the economy and then on labor and things like that. Um, we've also got wildfires. It turns out. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> how do you think about? Actually, let me ask you this question. Um, I think that. There's this perception that like wildfire risk in Northern California, PG&E territory in particular, sort of emerged uh, all of a sudden. Like PG&E wasn't prepared for it for many reasons, um, but one of which was that generally speaking, the wildfire risk maps weren't updated fast enough for us to recognize how risky Northern California, big parts of Northern California were to wildfire. Right. Is that true? And if so, what, what were we doing wrong? I think that's true-ish. I think there's a bunch of factors, actually, that have all kind of come together in a perfect storm, if you will, on on this issue. There's, in general, in climate resilience, and this is luckily changing, finally changing, in part because of Trevor's work and others, uh, we have been backward-looking instead of forward-looking in general. So there's this thing they call stationarity, which is basically like planning as if things are the way they were and not planning as if things are changing. And so there's a lot of updating of data and mapping, and it's getting better and better, partly because the private sector is getting involved in it. Um, it's getting better and better, the mapping, and we're getting better data. So I think we do have a better sense of what is going to happen than we did. That on top of that the risk is actually greater than it was. So we have a combination of, you know, what what you get with, with wildfires is you get this, it's, it's, a, it's a heat issue, it's also a precipitation pattern issue. We get, we just had this, a very wet winter, producing a whole bunch of vegetation that then dries out in a very dry summer. And then you get extreme winds, which a lot of people have started to do some attribution science around to climate. And the combination of those makes fire more more um, likely. And particularly the wind issue with the utilities is a big issue because they're clearing their line around their lines, whatever number of feet they're supposed to. But then a branch will break off and blow into a utility line. Right. right? And so that's very hard to plan for. We have winds putting embers half a mile in front of a fire. Like, that's a very hard thing to plan for. On top of that, we have the state's housing affordability crisis, which is pushing more and more people into these areas. So we have more people, therefore more power lines, therefore more possibility of this happening. And that's, I mean, that's a huge challenge. We have 11 million people in the wildland urban interface in this state, a quarter of the population. Makes us very different than a lot of other states with wildfire risk, like Wyoming and Idaho and other states like that. So that gets right into like the core of your day job, yeah. right? Because you're sort of overseeing all urban planning and land use yep. issues for the state of California. And I think one of the debates that we've seen here in wake of all these wildfires is, do you rebuild in those same places, right? Should we have housing in somewhere that is at such high risk? 
How do you think about that from a long-term land use perspective, especially given the housing affordability issue? Yeah, it's a really hard question. I mean, I don't want to pretend it's an easy question. It's, you know, there is in fact a lot more we could do in these places to make them safer. So we certainly need to, if we're rebuilding, we certainly need to rebuild with much more home hardening, with a lot better vegetation management. There's a lot more we could do and planning forward instead of backward. Um, There are interesting community scale efforts that are being considered. So one of the things we've realized with the high wind speeds is I can have like the most perfect fire safe house in the world. And then you live next to me and you don't do anything to your house. And then the fire jumps from your house to my house. I mean, it's not going to help me that much or the community. So people are starting to look at community scale efforts and including things like microgrids and solar and storage and some interesting options. You know, the power shutoffs, you know, can you island a community in time of high wind? So I think there's there's planning being done about these individual communities. Do you actually put places off limits because of climate risk? First of all, really hard to do because, you know, that's happening in places like Alaska where people are literally having to move because the sea is coming up into their community. Um, very hard to do until the very moment that you have to do it. Um, people don't. You're telling people that something that they've invested their whole savings in is is now worthless. Like that's a very challenging thing to know how to manage from a policy perspective. And also the state has limited um, power over land use. So we, we don't really have the ability to say that even if we believed it. Um, right. So it's something we're grappling with a lot, not just on on fires, but on sea level rise as well. One thing that I've been struck with as I've started to learn a little bit about this, just living in Northern California and learning more about wildfires and wildfire resilience, is um, how much of a difference building codes and I guess, as you're saying, community level versions of that can have. I read some crazy statistic about Paradise where the fires were the deadliest fires in American history last year, where the buildings that were built after 2008, which is when California instituted some new wildland urban interface building code, like 51% of them survived the Paradise fires, like 18% of the ones built before 2008 survived. So, you know, how much of the solution I guess specifically around wildfires, but I've heard this also applies to some extent with things like hurricanes where you have roof uh, replacements that you can do. Like how much is just, can we build buildings better? I mean, a lot of it, you know, honestly, it's, uh, we're learning a lot. I mean, just as we have with earthquakes, right? I mean, we've learned an enormous amount about what does and doesn't work. And uh, and we're just planning better for what we used to think were these tail risk events, like these very un un unlikely uh, events are becoming more likely. So, I think a lot of it it's it's a I would say it's a combination with fires. It's really a combination of buildings and vegetation management. That's a the whole thing about what things you should grow around your house and how close they should be is actually if not you know as if not more important than mm-hmm. what your building looks like. But there's also tweaks that are pretty easy, like closing your eaves. Um, and, you know, there's just things that people can do, different roof materials. Uh, that should be part of what everybody does. I mean, that's like a kind of a, in some ways, a low-hanging fruit thing, but we're going to have to help some of these communities do it. Unfortunately, many of the wetland urban interface communities in California are really low income. So there's going to be a lot of need for technical assistance, for capacity, for grants, all that stuff. Right. Let's move on from wildfires and yeah. talk about water. I could talk about wildfires all day, Shell. My whole <laughs> job sure has have. been about wildfires. <laughs> right. I'll give you a respite from that yeah, in that you. case. Thank you. Um, and talk about water. Um, and I guess there's sort of like two, at least two versions of water issues with climate change. One is the sea level rise. The Many. other is water scarcity, potentially. Oh. Um, let's talk about the water scarcity one, because that's, you know, California has lived through 
a pretty serious drought somewhat recently yep. that we've sort of come out of now. What is the prognosis for California's water future in a climate change world? I mean, it's the same prognosis for everything, which is that it's going to be completely unstable. So it's it's going to be up and down, right? And so what we're really looking at... Um, it, we did a lot of this coming out of the drought, and I wasn't here, but our current resources secretary, Wade Crowfoot, was in the governor's office for a lot of this and and put into this into effect the State Groundwater Management Act. There's a lot of sort of state-level direction on trying to save water and redirect water and have sort of a groundwater management strategy. Most of our water is groundwater, at least for the agricultural sector. Um, but the stuff that I'm really interested in is is sort of the more local solutions and some of the more the high tax solutions around things like water reclamation, you know, getting more water at the times of peak water, like the LA River is really interesting because it floods insanely when it's wet. And then it's just a concrete trough when it's Mm -hmm. dry. And they're not capturing most of the water when it floods, it's going straight back into the ocean. So how do you capture more of that water? How do you reuse it? How do we have much more kind of um, innovative strategies about doing that. People are looking at that all over the state because this is people's livelihoods. I mean, this state, you know, we've always used, we've always been dependent on snowpack and snowmelt at specific times. And what we're seeing from climate change is not only that we've got these very dry years, but we also are seeing the heat in general means the snow is melting earlier. And so more of our snowpack is, is, um, is kind of running off or evaporating and not turning into water that we can use in the summer. So it's it, there's all kinds of impacts in the state. And we're just having to be way more creative um, about how we use it. It's very, very challenging, though, because our water legal system is incredibly confusing. There's like four separate legal regimes that govern California water. Right. I've spent my whole career <laughs> on electricity, yeah. you know, and once in a while, I like, talk to a water person about like how crazy electricity market is. And they're like, ugh. You have no idea. <laughs> exactly. No idea. The water stuff, I can, I only have scratched the surface of it. Right. Right. Um, all right. What else? Besides uh, water scarcity and wildfire, what else is on your mind? As you I mean, about? sea level rise, obviously, is another yeah. big planning issue. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I had I've thought about it a lot because it's 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 a big issue on the East Coast. And so when we did risky business, most of our sea level rise numbers were East Coast numbers because it's more present, actually, and more immediate there. Um, Miami, everybody knows Norfolk. Virginia. Um, But you actually can see here now a lot of coastal erosion from sea level rise already. Um, Like Pacifica, which is just south of of San Francisco, I was there and I was walking my my dog and I was doing Google Maps directions, walking directions back to my family. And one of the streets that was on my Google Maps directions, which fittingly was called Ocean Avenue, was gone, essentially. There There were big signs up saying, you know, street closed and I looked at the street and it had eroded into the cliff like it was falling off the cliff and so it's literally already happening in Pacifica and I think some of these coastal communities are starting to really worry about that because in California many of places in the United States but in California I think this is really true people's entire net worth is in their houses I mean people's uh, incomes are completely tied up in their real estate assets and what happens when those are at risk and suddenly they're not insurable or they are falling into the ocean or, you know, whatever the thing is, um, they come down in an earthquake. I mean, that's happened already many times. But what does that look like for people's livelihoods? Insurance is a, a diversion, but one that I think is yeah. interesting because you're seeing this, I mean, coastal areas for sure. You're also seeing this in wildfire prone areas where all of a sudden, you know, homeowners who've lived in a wildland urban interface um, area are seeing their 
homeowners insurance premiums like skyrocket to levels that they absolutely cannot afford. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I think you just as a sort of feeling person want to blame the insurance company. On the other hand, the insurance company appears to maybe just be pricing in the actual risk to the asset that they're insuring. Now. Yeah. So I don't know what you do about that. I mean, insurance companies are kind of ahead of the curve on on climate projections, not surprisingly, because they they're left holding the bag. Right. Um and we are seeing that. I mean, California is interesting. Our earthquake, I think only 11% of Californians are covered by earthquake insurance uh, because that folks got out of that market a long time ago. Um, we're starting to see that with fire, although I will say my office staffed the wildfire commission that the state put together. And one thing the commission found was that people still can get insurance. It's just they're mostly getting it on the secondary market. And you're absolutely right. It's very expensive. We also have this fair plan that's a sort of a state backstop on insurance that makes sure everybody gets it. Again, the thing that's true, though, across California, and I think is really important, is that it's still all risk-based. We're not replicating the flood insurance program at the national level. We're not giving people insurance where the risk is so high that it doesn't make any sense to do it. Uh, we're basically pricing it according to risk, which means it's getting priced higher and higher. You're absolutely right. And what does that look like? I mean, some of it, I think, is necessary because it will start providing the incentive for people to lower their own risk. A lot of this is on communities and homeowners at the end of the day. It really is. I mean, we're we some of the fires, big fires last year were started by problematic homeowner decisions uh, around their properties. And so we really do need this to be something people think about very actively. And the insurance pricing does help do that. On the other hand, as you said, again, we're we're talking about pretty low income communities in a lot of cases. And this is a very, very hard not to crack, honestly. It's really challenging what you do about it because I think what we don't want and can't afford, frankly, as a state is to say we're going to socialize insurance. Right. Are, are insurers um, getting specific enough with their pricing so that if you're a homeowner in one of those areas and you actually do the right thing, you can get a reduction in your insurance costs? They're starting to. It's interesting. They're starting. We, we have a lot of people come in and talk to us about this, not surprisingly, and they're starting to use really sophisticated like vegetation mapping and LIDAR and, you know, right. some sat we're doing satellite stuff. And it's you're starting to see some of that like very, very specific information about individual parcels be incorporated into pricing, which I think is good because ultimately that will be, you know, you, you can give the insurance companies can give directions about a direction about what should be changed and what will affect pricing. I think that's good. Today, we live in a world where the entire power ecosystem is being upended, disrupted by global technology trends like digitalization, combined with locally based movements for more distributed clean energy. And as part of that evolution, Schneider Electric helps companies, communities, and governments embrace microgrids to enable a more resilient, reliable, and sustainable future. In Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, county officials launched an aggressive effort to improve resilience at its expansive government facilities after devastating storms in 2012. And as part of a wide-ranging solution completed in 2018, the county worked with Schneider Electric to install two microgrids at critical government facilities that incorporate renewables, EV charging, and combined heat and power with no money up front. Across North America, Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrids. To learn more about their microgrid-as-a-service funding model, say hello to Schneider at the 2019 Verge Conference on October 22nd through 24th, or visit them via the link in the show notes of this podcast. 
We are also brought to you by PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty vehicles play a big role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. And with over 70 different models of zero-emission vans, trucks, and buses already commercially available from several manufacturers, now is the time to take your commercial fleet electric. So where to begin? Well, you can begin with PG&E's free guidebook on fleet electrification and infrastructure. If you download that, you'll get uh, all the information you need to start transitioning your fleet to electric, including advice on charger selection, site planning, additional funding opportunities, and much more. Download your free copy of the guidebook today, no strings attached, or forms to fill at pge.com slash gtmev, or just click that little link there in the show notes and you will get your report to help you on your way to electrify. I'm curious from your perspective, um, being uh, in front of the California populace a lot, (laughs) um, what is sort of the Californian's attitude toward climate change at this point? Not as a voter necessarily, but as a citizen. Yeah, California is really... um it's people are very pro climate policy in California. I mean, it's interesting. And I go to a lot of parts of California because the other thing that I get to do, which I didn't talk about earlier, but I also co-lead this thing called Regions Rise Together with the head of our business of uh, business and economic development office, Lenny Mendoza. We uh, go all over the state and talk to people in regions that are inland where we don't, we haven't spent as much time, right. As a, as a state, I mean, the legislature again is very urban and coastal. So we kind of try to spend time in other parts of the state. So we spend a lot of time traveling around the state. And I won't say that everybody everywhere is excited to talk about climate change all the time, but I've never had a, an argument about the reality of climate change in California ever. Um, and pretty much, and this is backed up by all the polling from PPNC and others, PPIC and others, pretty much everybody believes it's happening and wants to do something about it. Um, in large part, I think that's because the impacts are so severe, right? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that was my experience working on risky business where I did a lot of work in conservative states was that climate impacts and resilience actually resonate with most people because it's very present and people want to think about it and deal with it. And it's a window into this issue. And in California, I think the impacts are so present all the time that it's sort of like it's already understood. And so you can get to a conversation about mitigation actually pretty quickly because it's sort of a solution oriented conversation. Um, so in general, I don't find that California is a place where we need to spend a ton of time educating or kind of consciousness raising on climate change. The big issue for us, frankly, is, you know, not do we have amb- bold, ambitious policy because we do. It's how in the world are we implementing it? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you achieve it? Right. And I would imagine that even in somewhere like California, where you've got most of the population that already believes in climate science and all that, you'd still actually have a hard time getting a lot of the adaptation measures that you would want in place. Land use changes, for example, right? Do you still have a hard time drawing the connection between, well, we're doing this because this is what we, this is what the science tells us is going to happen in this location in 20 years. And so we have to do this thing today. Yeah, it depends on the land use change you're talking about. I mean, we've had an enormous kind of almost, you know, almost overwhelming positive response to like the forest management stuff um, because it's very clearly connected to wildfire risk and everyone sort of understands it. And so there's a lot of work that's been done there in the in this administration and a lot of people have been very supportive of it, obviously. And like uh, wetlands restoration is very positive, right? Um, uh, urban greening, urban forestry is very positive. Obviously, once you get to the things that are about behavior change and like really serious 
uh, land use change, it's much harder. It's it's interesting to me, you know, in California, I think a lot of our climate policy has been about technology for the last eight to 10 years. It's been about sort of how do I plug my thing in and the thing behind the plug is different than it was before. Like people love solar here. Um, and I know you love solar. So people love solar. People love wind. People love electric cars. People love, you know, technology solutions. But then when you get to anything that's about sort of change in patterns of living, it gets extremely hard. And that's a big challenge for us, honestly, because 41% of our emissions are from transportation and it's 51% if you count oil and gas extraction. So it's a lot. Um, and the biggest chunk of that, it's going up every year. And the biggest reason it's going up is because people are driving so much back to housing affordability. Um, but getting cities to build more housing, infill housing, and tr- more do more transit investment is like pulling teeth. So I think part of our, our goal in this administration is to kind of continually talk about how housing and transportation are climate issues, continually talk about how land preservation, to not turn it into sprawl is a climate issue, not only because we don't want people to drive so much, but because, you know, we need wetlands to stop all the flooding from being as bad. We need orchards because they act as fire breaks in some of these really big fires. Like you actually, all this stuff has to work together and you can't just cement over it all and expect everything to be fine. Do you see a big impact in public perception um, when something like a Big wildfire happens or you know, when there's an earthquake, I suppose, you know, are, are there um, singular events that galvanize action and attention um, or is it like a slow, steady build of, oh, my God, it was so hot this summer? Well, I think the fires are that kind of event. I mean, we it's interesting. PPIC, the Public Policy Institute of California, just did their kind of annual environment, environmental poll of Californians. And they found overwhelming support for climate action because they always do. But they found more support for action on wildfires and prevention and climate pr- policy around that. The levels were higher than anything they've ever seen and ever, which is not surprising because right. it's so top of mind. Um, I think that it's opened an interesting window for us on, you know, th- as a state and also for regional land use folks to think a little bit more regionally about some of these issues. We've sort of been able to use the fires and the relationship between the fires and land use policy and and um, climate risk to talk about some of these big issues like what role natural working lands play in keeping us lower risk on climate, like keeping climate risk at bay. We've been able to use them to talk about the connection between housing, transportation, and climate. Um, I don't know that that was really there before because people weren't thinking about this stuff kind of quite as regionally. And part of that's because the fires, even though they were in parts, very unpopulated or low populated parts of the state, the air quality issues all hit the Bay Area and L.A. And that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to um, a while ago when we were talking about wildfires. I think a couple of times you mentioned distributed generation, microgrids, things no. like that. How do you think about stuff like that fitting into this broader context of climate adaptation? Yeah, I think it's um, it's sort of a necessary part of the conversation. We have to think about solutions. We have to be forward-looking about solutions to some of these things that take advantage of new technology. I mean, that's true on the grid side. And we're actually, you know, the the I don't know when you're airing this, but the Verge conference is happening right now in Oakland. And we're the state is co-hosting a half-day summit on grid reliability, specifically to hear some of the best ideas out there on, like, reliability and, and, uh, and 
resilience and to think about what are the possible interesting technologies that, you know, can make it easier to turn off a small part of the grid, not the whole grid, you know, not an entire region, um, can make it so communities can potentially be insured at lower rates because they have a kind of a forward-looking solution on this stuff. Um, so that that seems really important. I mean, we see the same thing on the transportation side, right, that some of our issues with transportation emissions and, frankly, with um, with resilience around transportation, our transportation systems are very vulnerable to climate impacts. Um, what can we think about in terms of autonomous vehicles and you know other new technologies to kind of get at that and, and become more resilient? We're spending a lot of time thinking about those because ultimately we're not planning for the same world we were planning for for the past 50 to 100 years. Right. Um, so this has been a very California-centric conversation, as you'd expect. <laughs> it's my job, my friend. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I presume that you do interact with your peers in other states, perhaps other countries. Yeah. Who else is doing it right? Like, if you're looking at other states or countries or whatever it might be, is there anywhere that you look to as exemplary, saying, that, you know, from an adaptation perspective, they're thinking about it right, they're taking the right moves? Yeah, we do a lot of stuff with other states and countries. Um, just as an example, we're we're co-chairs of the U.S. Climate Alliance. So that's 23 states and one territory, Puerto Rico, uh, focusing on, you know, we've all we've all sort of committed to a pledge on climate mitigation. But everybody also spends a lot of time talking about adaptation, obviously, and resilience. So that's been really instructive because there's states there that have very significant issues like Hawaii is part of it. And obviously they are super dependent on their coast. They have sea level rise issues. They're in Pacific Island state. I mean, they have sea level rise issues and they're trying to figure out kind of interesting solutions around tourism and water and, you know, water availability and incursion of salt water into their water system and all that stuff. Um, so it's very top of mind for Hawaii. Um, it's very top of mind for, um, you know, places in the Southeast, which have extreme heat and, you know, Caribbean storm impact. So we're, we spend a lot of time with other states kind of thinking through um, you know, kind of local adaptation measure, but also a lot of time increasingly talking about how do we how do we start leveraging private sector investment into resilience? One of the interesting things that's starting to happen is that insurance companies, which are also investors, are starting to invest in resilient solutions that lower their own risk to whatever the event is that's going to happen. So investing in wild and again, wetland restoration is really interesting um, or investing in um, you know, some of these interesting resilience solutions that we've talked about, water reclamation, whatever. Um, so we talk about that a lot. We also are part of, we were co-founders of the Under Two Coalition, which is the, used to be the Under Two MOU. It's a coalition of sub-nationals. Um, so not countries, but like states, regions. Um, we, we formed it, I think, with a region in Germany called Baden-Württemberg. Um, and so that's really interesting because through that, we end up talking to places like Australia, which is incredibly forward thinking on water, mm. uh, for instance. I mean, they have fire and water, right? So they're they're dealing with wildfire issues as well. But they're also um, very, very interesting. They did a big uh, kind of country level response to their last drought, which really was forward looking and like essentially put in place sort of, I want to say a cap and trade system. It's like a pricing system for water that's very, very forward looking. Um, Israel has been a huge leader on water. Uh, and and we talk to those folks all the time. Brazil, of course, um, we're talking to all the time about some of the other land use challenges. So it's, you know, it's we, we try we're trying to use these in some ways, these coalitions we're part of were sort of set up 
originally under the Brown administration really as a place to show global leadership. Like they were really set up to be sort of the part of the we are still in, you know, the Paris meeting the Paris agreements um, goal. But now we're starting to really see them turn toward kind of working sessions on implementation and trying to figure out what's working, what isn't, and what political challenges people have come up against and kind of strategies. Kate Gordon is the director of the Office of Planning and Research uh, for the state of California. Kate, thank you so much for doing this. Thank this you. Fun. It's so fun to talk to you. Uh, so, Shale, are you feeling any more nervous about calling California home? <laughs> I've been feeling nervous about calling California home ever since I moved here. So Kate did nothing to make it any worse, but <laughs> it was bad already. California is a whole different category of risk. Probably, yeah. I mean, I read somewhere that um, in like the climate change, the dystopian climate change future, the best place to live is going to be northern Minnesota or like the upper peninsula of Michigan. So I was pondering whether I should go buy real estate there now while it's still cheap. Yeah, I've thought about Newfoundland. Newfoundland. They like it up there. So. Uh-huh. Speaking of Canada, like next week we're going to have someone who's way south of Newfoundland, who's in Montreal, but it is an expert who, an an economist who has been looking at the housing market. And so we're going to peer into a problem that impacts all of us in coastal areas, how sea level rise and flooding is already causing issues in the mortgage market. And we're going to talk about how those risks are getting shifted to the taxpayer. So stay with us for that one. And that's it for the second installment in our Climate Risk series. The Interchange is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Shiel Khan is my co-host. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>